0: Master's of Social Gastronomy, that's MSG. My name is Sarah Lohman. I write the blog Four Pounds Flour, and I am a culinary social historian gastronomist. This here is Jonathan Soma. He founded, co founded the Brooklyn Brainery, and he's a master of science.
1: First up, Sarah talks about, you wanted to pitch what you're talking about?
0: I'm going to pitch to you several scenarios of which ice cream came first. You're going to make your decision, and then we're going to reveal the answer. And through these answers, we will cover the history of ice cream, things that you do know, things that you don't know, things that the next time you're eating ice cream, you're going to think about and then say and impress your friends.
1: And I'm talking about ice cream and nothing specific. <laughs> All of it. Not um, there are a lot of dick jokes, but that's okay. It's all just, it's science's fault. It doesn't have anything to do with me.
0: So my first question. Oh. Sherbert or sorbet, think about it. Which one came first? Applause for sherberts. <laughs> that wasn't very strong. Applause for sorbet. Oh! Well, so to figure out which one came first, we have to look at really the proto prehistory of ice cream, and that starts with snow. That was the first cold thing we were drinking and eating. Um, We have a reference to it being collected from the mountains in Japan in the fourth century. So that's a pretty damn long time ago. Um, In China, in Persia, snow was collected, packed in boxes with straw, and stored. And then it was used to make drinks called serbert, or sabat, or sabati. These drinks were made with the snow, also water, and a sweetened sugar syrup that ha- would have fruit flavors or could have lemons, rose water, citron, violets, or ambergris. One thing that I've learned during this research is that in the past they liked to flavor things with secretions, which is not something I thought about before. Ambergris forms in the intestines of a whale. And I don't know, yeah, nice. I don't know why that, I I don't know if it's irritation or what it is, but at some point the whale pukes it up and then it washes ashore and it's like this big brownish ball that you can find on the beach. And initially it smells like ocean and fecal matter, but then you can let it ripen and mature and it develops, I guess, more subtler smells. For a very long time it was used in perfume too and it was really common in sweets and pastries. Um, That was a little bit more popular in uh, the Middle East, in Europe fruit flavors, as well as hazelnut and pistachio flavors, of shabati was also very popular too. So to turn this into something that's closer to ice cream, we need to freeze it. This is just a cold drink. That happens in the middle of the 15th century when scientists discover that you can mix ice, which again, they're collecting from the mountains, snow, you can pack it with saltpeter or salt And you create this brine solution that the temperature is, well, it lowers the freezing point of water. And it's very easy to use this brine solution to freeze things. So that technological, that scientific um, event happened, and that was in the middle of the 15th century. And sometime within the next half century, chefs took that knowledge and began freezing things. One of the first things they froze was kind of natural, a natural progression of this cold drink drink. that started turning it into a slushy which would then be sorbet. So if you guess sorbet, you guess right, yay! So this drawing is cool, it's from the 1750s, and these tiny little cupids are using ice cream makers. See them? There's the bucket, there's the ice, and then there are these like, things with the handle that you would turn back and forth and back and forth. And this design didn't change for the next 200 years. Ice cream makers stayed exactly the same. So from the 1650s at least through the 1850s, we were making ice cream in a sorbetier is what it's called. Jefferson also brought one of these back from France too. So ice and fruit and sugar makes a sorbet. So what defines a sherbet? So for a long time, those two terms were used interchangeably. Sorbet was generally what it was called in France and Italy, and sherbet is what it was called in English-speaking countries. But I feel the real distinction comes when we begin mixing um, dairy in with it. And that happens in the 1870s. In the 1870s, there's the first published recipes for sherbet and it's um, fruit juice sweetened water as well as egg whites or milk or cream. And to me, that's a sherbet. First commercial sherbets appeared in 1932 and they get more and more popular during World War II because of rationing. Milk was rationed. So a sherbet takes a lot less milk than ice cream. Additionally, sugar was rationed. And they began replacing sugar with corn syrup, which is kind of the first time this starts happening in food. Um, However, corn syrup produced a smoother product, as did the addition of gelatin. Rainbow sherbet was invented the 1950s. You might have seen this episode. Um, Orange sherbet is one of the originals. The 1870s recipes are for lemon sherbet's, cream sherbet, and orange sherbet. And orange sherbet gets really popular in the 1950s with Howard Johnson's. Howard Johnson's was one of the first restaurant chains. They had an ice cream parlor and they were famous for their orange sherbet, which was recently featured in an episode of Mad Men and she didn't like it either. There's this great essay online where her rejection of the orange sherbet is also about her rejection of Don's way of life. Think about that. <laughs> so it's this mid-century interest in sherbet is why I associate it with my grandmother, but now I'm kind of craving rainbow sherbet again, so I might give it another try. Maybe that's the next big thing is gourmet sherbet. So there you go, sorbet did in fact come before sherbet. So my next question, and this is a very divisive question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> applause for chocolate, came first. <laughs> applause for vanilla came first. Wow. That was pretty evenly spread, but it seems like it's going towards vanilla. Okay, well to understand chocolate and vanilla ice cream, we have to understand how sorbets or sherbets evolved into ice creams. That comes from medieval custards. Um, For a very long time, there were custards in Europe that were flavored with really wild flavors. Um, For example, almonds, um, saffron, honey and citron, Laurel leaves, tarragon, celery, and cumbrel cookies, and also musk, which is another secretion <laughs> that comes from the gland of the musk deer. But Soma just told me to get musk, you have to kill the deer and take its glands. So. Although you can get ambergris still, nobody uses it anymore. It's been replaced by synthetics, but that doesn't hurt anything. We always puke it up all the time, apparently. But musk, we don't use anymore because you kill a whole deer to take its glands, and who wants to do that? Um, so the only difference between like this style of custard and the original ice creams, or frozen custard ice cream, is one is baked and one is frozen. So this, much like the drinking the serbert, the charbat, was a natural transition into freezing. So ice cream. This is the first ice cream recipe known. It was in a handwritten journal published in 16, not published, but written in 1665 by an English woman who was um, the wife of the ambassador to France named Lady Anne Fanshawe. Um, Her recipe for icy creams, notice you can even read the flavoring. She suggests mace or orange flower water or or ambergris or whale puke if you're into that. Um, So, now that we know where ice cream comes from, which one was first? When was the first recipe for chocolate? And when was the first recipe for vanilla? It certainly wasn't this one. Well, the answer is chocolate. <laughs> chocolate, when it was originally served, was a drink. Before it went into other confections, you drank it. We were already talking about freezing those frozen, those cold fruit drinks, so freezing chocolate may, would make sense to people. Drinks were some of the earliest flavors of ice cream, including tea and coffee too. Um, The earliest coffee recipe appears in the 17th, like the mid-18th century, and you can make it by um, brewing coffee or by just steeping the coffee beans in the cream, and that provided, that made white coffee ice cream. You had the taste of coffee but without the flavor. The tea would be green tea, which now we associate with kind of like Asian trendy ice creams. Green tea ice cream has been around since about the same amount of time, since the mid-18th century, and green tea was the first type of tea produced and exported um, out of Asia. So the first chocolate recipe was in 1692, published in Italian. And chocolate was a drink that it was often milled with other spices: um, cinnamon, um, star anise, um, musk, our favorite, chili peppers, almonds, things like that. It w- So although the recipes called for simply chocolate and cream and eggs and sugar, the flavor would have been more complex than just chocolate. It would have had all those other spices in it, a little bit like Mexican chocolate today. And Mexican chocolate is actually descendant of the European tradition of drinking chocolate, as opposed to the native peoples of Central America tradition, who would have simply had it as the ground cacao beans, not with all these other spices. So I thought this was a cool idea to use this kind of spiced chocolate. So I decided to make some. This is American heritage chocolate, which is produced by the historic division of Mars, who knew there was such a thing. (laughs) You can only get it in certain areas like historic sites outside of DC. So I've got a hookup that gives me my American heritage chocolate. Um, It comes in a chocolate crayon kind of, and actually I've got um, a box of it. And inside there's a little bit of product. So if you want to take it out and fondle it, you can do so. So I, I grated it up and I made a really classic ice cream custard, just really simple. A lot of the early recipes, um, not quite as early as the first one, but they do suggest adding vanilla beans, so that's what I did. I ended up with chocolate ice cream. Now, I first licked, like, right fresh off the dasher, I was like, McDonald's chocolate milkshake. Well, at least I remember they taste. I haven't had one, since they had braces in middle school. That was my treat for going to the orthodontist. Um, But then once I froze it hard and let it set, it really has a complex flavor. Not an intense chocolate flavor, but the, the spices make it really warm. And the anise is really prominent, but not a licorice kind of way, in this really pleasant way. So I brought it tonight. So there will be two different ice creams that you can sample. Uh, Unfortunately, not enough since I'm just doing this at home for everyone to have both. But this is one, original chocolate ice cream, something close to how it would have tasted in the 1690s when people were producing it. So if chocolate came first, then we have vanilla. Why did vanilla take so long to come around? We don't see a vanilla recipe until 70 years later in the 1760s. It's because of the vanilla orchid. Um, This is the plant that produces the seed pods that we get vanilla flavoring from. This is native to Mexico, and for a long time, even though they tried growing it outside of Mexico, it wouldn't seed. It has a symbiotic relationship with a Mexican bee that pollinates it. We don't figure that out until the 1840s. That's when we start hand pollinating it and that's when it becomes more more readily available. If you look at cookbooks from before that time, all the ways that we use vanilla today, we instead use orange flower water or rose water. So that original icy cream recipe with orange flower water, that's like the vanilla of the 17th century. But then that changes. Um, actually, fairly quickly, first recipe with vanilla person, 1760. Um, in the 1780s, we have um, oh, orange flower water and rose water. You can still get it today. It's very, very cheap. Um, Thomas Jefferson's original ice cream recipe is from the 1780s. And the first ice cream recipes published in America in the 1820s includes vanilla, as well as coconut citron and some fresh fruit flavors. So I wanted to make something that was closer to the original vanilla, something that used, in this case, I wanted to use rose water. And so I looked at some of the early custard flavorings and I decided to make a sage and rose water ice cream. So this is the other ice cream that you'll have the option of tasting. And this one, I had some little bit of trouble with the flavoring. I started with a half teaspoon of rose water, not wanting to go too strong. Rose water, when used subtly, can be a, a beautiful, almost unidentifiable flavor. When it's used too strong, it's not very pleasant. Ditto with sage, it's a really oily herb and it's really easy to go overboard. But I put a half teaspoon of rose water in, I steeped fresh um, sage and it t- tasted like nothing after I mixed it and semi-froze it. So at the last moment I took crumbled dry sage and then blended that in. So that's the specks you see, almost like specks from a Vanilla Bean. I don't like it, but... <laughs> that doesn't actually mean it's bad. It's not bad ice cream, it's not to my taste. The flavors, even though I strengthened them, are still very subtle and they're very unidentifiable. It's very hard to to recognize, to um, say that's sage and that's rose water. It's a little bit soapy, but sometimes people (laughs) like those flavors. I know, really, everyone's gonna, chocolate ice cream's gonna be gone so fast. It really is pleasantly surprising. It is a good ice cream. So if you like things that are a little bit herbal, I would say, I think that this should be the one that you should choose. So it was interesting. I'm really glad I did both. Here's Jefferson's recipe. Um, That's the earliest written American ice cream recipe that we know of. And he only had like a dozen recipes in his manuscripts. And ice cream was one of them. He was a big, big, big fan. So chocolate predates vanilla by a good 70 years at least. But the next question. So who thinks the ice cream sandwich came first? Okay, okay. Who thinks the ice cream cone came first? We're very uncertain about this one. Actually, history is a little bit uncertain, too. Here's what we can say. Well, first of all, when I was searching for images for ice cream sandwich, I kept getting Android phones, which was a bizarre (laughs) new discovery. So I finally found this one. Um, These are both portable forms of ice cream, right? You pick these up and you walk down the street and you eat them. And up until this point, ice cream was made in the home by rich people, by their cooks, for this kind of like grand display, or even just the, um, the uniqueness of having a cold dessert at the end of a meal. So things change, and they change in America. In the 1840s, a woman named Nancy Johnson invents this, the hand crank ice cream maker. This is much different than what those little cupids were using. You'd even have to take the lid off those old ones and stir it yourself. This, when you turn the crank, it turns a dasher in the middle. And the dasher is continually mixing and scraping the frozen ice cream. This makes a, s- a smoother, more consistently frozen product, and it makes it easier to make. And anyone can buy this, even if you don't have a servant. This is much easier to use. The other thing that affects the ice cream industry is ice harvesting. In the 19th century, the ice industry explodes, particularly in New England and New York. We harvest ice from lakes, from streams, and we, it can stay in an ice house until the following October, some reports say. In the 1830s, we shipped the first boat full of ice to Calcutta, And three decades before that, we had started shipping ice to the West Indies. Take a moment and imagine if you lived somewhere where you had never tasted anything cold in your life. That's something we take for granted. There's this great scene in this movie, Fitzcarraldo, which is a Werner Herzog movie, you know what I'm talking about. And like, Fitzcarraldo is this kind of millionaire and he gets rich by like, by making ice. And like the people who, this is in Central America, Brazil, and people are obsessed with it because what if you've never had something cold before? So those two things, easier ice cream, it's easier to make. Ice is getting really cheap and easy to get. So we start making more ice cream. Hundreds of ice cream saloons, as they're known, are opened in New York City. And what's unique about these places is that unlike the alcohol saloons, there were places in the 19th century where women could go and men and women could go out together. And that was very, very different. Once the ice cream saloons start opening up, street vendors become very common. He is so cute, I love him. <laughs> This comes from a, a book called Cries of the Street, I believe, published in 1850 about all the street vendors in New York City. So he's, his mouth is going, ice cream! And notice he's got um, kind of old-style tanks to store his ice cream in. When you sold ice cream on the street, it was often sold from cups like these called penny licks, which were blown glass cups that were tricky. Notice only the top indentation is where the ice cream goes, but the way it's built, it would reflect it so it looked like the whole thing was full of ice cream. (laughs) Was not. The problem with the penny licks was twofold. When you put a scoop of ice cream in the penny lick and then you handed it to a customer, you didn't give them a spoon. You sucked it out or you scooped it out with your fingers and ate it and went back for more. And then the ice cream vendor would just dunk that in some water and put more ice cream in it. This is what we do in the 19th century. People die. That's all they did. (laughs) So problem number one is death and disease. You know, you can spread (laughs) diseases through ice cream. Problem number two is if you get ice cream, that means you have to stand there by the ice cream guy to finish it so you can give him back his penny lick cup. So people wanted to figure out a method where you could take your ice cream and walk away with it. Someone got the idea to make a harder ice cream product that was at the time considered adulterated with gelatin or sweetened condensed milk to make this firmer product. It was frozen in a brick that you would slice off and then wrap in paper. So this sold better because that meant you could buy it and then walk off and eat it at your leisure. This was a very short jump to this to making edible wrapping. So the ice cream sandwich did, in fact, well, I actually can't say that yet. It was more popular first. In 1901, there's new pa- newspaper accounts of these being sold in the Bowery for a penny. Something that looked like this, a wafer cookie, they also could be made with ladyfingers, graham crackers, or Nilla wafers, someone else recommended. So they would've been cute, tasty little sandwiches. <laughs> You're really excited about that. <laughs> I mean, it looks delicious, right? Now as far as the ice cream cone, their origins are much older. Wafer making is an old tradition, dating back even to the Greeks. You press hot wafers and then traditionally they could be rolled into cones or into little kind of pipes, little sticks like that. Um, By the 19th century, this Hold on. I've been talking. not even looking at my notes. Um, This was really common, and even the batter was flavored with different ingredients like almonds or brandy or coffee or chocolate, things like that. And even at the 19th century, too, they would be called cornets, and they would be rolled into cones and filled with berries or sweetmeats or even whipped cream. But at first, not ice cream. So we thought. The date of the first ice cream cone has been pushed further and further and further back. And currently, a very, very recent discovery has been made in the form of a lithograph, of which there are only two known from 1807. See her? <laughs> this is of uh, ice cream, of a cafe, a cafe that sold all kinds of things called um, Frascati's. I'm looking at my notes. It was in Paris. And this is just like kind of a day in the afternoon at this cafe, frescatis it's true. And in the bottom right corner, there she is, going to town on that ice cream cone. <laughs> so there's an essay about this online uh, with one of the kind of premier, um, I, oddly all the ice cream historians are, are guys. I can't figure that out. Like they're all, the preeminent ice cream historians are all men as opposed to a lot of culinary historians are women. Ice cream I guess is more masculine, I have no idea. Anyway, he looked at that, has looked at that and looked at that, he really does think that that is the first ice cream cone. We don't have ice cream cones in print until the 1880s, so it's a very hard thing to pin down. Um, Here are the cornets that I mentioned, and the first person to suggest using a cornet for ice cream is Agnes Marshall, who is dubbed the queen of ice cream, and produces this amazing book in the 1880s. We're gonna talk more about her. She influenced ice cream in different ways. We do know where it got popular, It's popular at the 1904 World's Fair, which when you hear most of the creation myths of an ice cream cone, they come from the World's Fair. So-and-so ice cream vendor next to so-and-so wafer maker and blah, 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 he runs out of cups and he has this brilliant idea. It's It's all kind of myth. We do know that they eat this ice cream here and there they are chowing down on their ice cream cones which look like a modern ice cream cone. So that's 1904, okay. Last question, which came first, Neapolitan ice cream or liquid nitrogen ice cream? Okay, Neapolitan, okay, liquid nitrogen, that's interesting. Okay, okay, I will say Neapolitan beats liquid nitrogen, but not by much. They're very, very, very close. Um, Those ice cream bricks that I described to you, um, they were often nicknamed Hokey Pokey. And an article that describes these, um, describes the makers and the sellers as being from Naples, Naples, Italy. So they call it Hokey Pokey, and then they would say that the makers from Italy often made tricolored blocks of ice cream that they referred to as Neapolitan because it came from Naples. This appears in cookbooks, and they even suggest, apparently, the original Neapolitan was pistachio, vanilla, and strawberry for the colors of the Italian flag. And eventually, we replaced pistachio with chocolate. Agnes Marshall, who I'm going to show you. Oh, let's go. There she is. She is so hot. (laughs) Right? She's, oh, my goodness. She suggests, however, this is not so hot, that you make a savory ice cream of artichoke, cucumber, and tomato (laughs) for the same idea didn't catch on. So I've got Agnes here because she's also the same person that suggested the first use of liquid nitrogen in ice cream. Um, Maybe in 1901, Hokey Pokey, by the way, um, was uh, the first reference to it was in 1885. The first reference to liquid nitrogen is in 1901. So that's what I mean by it's really close. She might have given a demonstration at, um, where was it? The Royal Institution in London, where she froze ice cream with liquid nitrogen. We know for certain that she talked about it in her magazine called The Table in 1904. She says, liquid air will do wonderful things, but as a table adjunct, its powers are astonishing. And persons scientifically inclined may perhaps like to amuse and instruct their friends, as well as feed them when they invite themselves to the house. By the aid of liquid oxygen, for example, each guest at a dinner party may make his or her ice cream at the table by simply stirring with a spoon the ingredients of ice cream to which a few drops of liquid air has been added by the servant, 1904. We thought this was such a new concept. This is a really cute illustration of liquid air. Liquid air is liquid oxygen, which you could also liquefy and use to freeze. This is um, liquid air boiling on a block of ice. So it's same properties, and it's difficult to tell if she is actually talking, she's talking about liquid oxygen, that's what liquid air was called. We don't know if that's what she was using to freeze ice cream. And then nobody does it for years to come until, and this surprised me more so than, than Agnes Marshall there. In the mid-1980s, so this predates the molecular gastronomy movements, a, um, a uh, biologist, a microbiologist, got the idea to flash freeze ice cream with liquid nitrogen. The resulting product, we probably all had. can anyone guess what it is? That's the one. I did not think of this as proto-molecular gastronomy, but that's exactly what it is now. Today, now they did declare bankruptcy in 2011, but they're still producing. I know, so go eat some dippin' dots then for crying out loud. I blame myself. I never liked, I didn't like them because ice cream is actually best slightly warm. You can't taste ice cream when it's this cold, which is why I, I never liked it. But I still feel bad that they're going out of business. Um, that's the patent for the Dippin' Dots maker. Ice cream is dripped into a cryogenic freezer and that's how it freezes into the little pellets and they mix it together. Liquid nitrogen um, in the forms that we see it today was pioneered by a man named Hervé Tis. And he is a chemist that worked closely with chefs and directly influenced chefs like Ferran Adria and uh, Heston Blumenthal, who were some of the, they're considered the fathers of the molecular gastronomy movement, even though they don't necessarily consider themselves that. So, Hervaitis um, is the one who used liquid nitrogen to freeze tableside ice cream in the modern era, which then influenced those two chefs, and they were the first ones to do it in their restaurants. So to kind of close, I just wanna share with you some of the flavors that I came across with while doing this research, what I think are really cool. Um, so 17th century flavors, we've got almond, saffron, honey and citron, violet, ambergris, laurel leaves, tarragon, celery, and crumbled cookies. A- in addition to the regulars, like fruits, everyone loves fruit and nuts. But originally, actually we can talk about nuts, because in the 18th century, people loved pine nuts but early ice creams didn't have chunks of things in it. Whatever you wanted to flavor the ice cream, you would steep it in the cream. Maybe you'd even cook it with the cream and then strain it out. So it had the flavor without the texture. So 18th century flavors, pine nuts, verjuice, which is almost like vinegar made from sour grapes, um, truffle, artichoke, artichoke, pistachio, candied orange actually was all one flavor. Pineapple has been a long time favorite. Chocolate, clove, vanilla, and lemon. Again, all one flavor. Vanilla and cinnamon. Brown bread, like rye. You'd steep the cream with rye bread. Pomegranate, jasmine, fresh fennel, and elderflowers. And a couple from the 19th century: um, curacao and orange water, fig, burnt almonds, cinnamon, lemon zest, and bay leaf. Ratafia, which is a kind of an herbal liqueur, and biscuit tortoni, which is amaretto and almond cookie. So. I don't like leaving things in the past. I want to give you a modern reference. And this right here is the ice cream menu from the Chinatown Ice Cream Factory on Bayard Streets, which is probably my favorite ice cream place in the city. Notice some of their flavors green tea, which we now know is very old. People are making green tea ice cream for 200 years, more than almond cookies, just like biscuit tortoni. And they're even just kind of going along with tradition of flavors that we see as wild and crazy and modern, but aren't. People when there was Parmesan ice cream, for goodness sakes, in the 18th century. And I also love that on the regular flavor side, they have black sesame, durian, and lychee. And on the exotic flavor side, they have peach <laughs> and pistachio and chocolate chip. So if you ever get a chance to stop by this place, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. And that's what I gotta say about ice cream.
1: Yeah. Yay, thank you. So. The first thing we have to talk about is what makes ice cream ice cream. Number one, it's cold, <laughs> and it's made out of ice. In the in, in the beginning, um, we had slaves. And what the slaves would do in, say, ancient Rome or uh, China or wherever is they would go to the mountains, and they would collect all the ice and the snow, probably not all of it, but enough of it, and then they would bring it back to, you know, Alexander the Great or Nero or whoever happened to be the boss in that area at the time, and then they would put some honey or some fruit on this ice from the mountains, and you'd be like, this is great. This is, this is really good. It wasn't ice cream, though. Um, it was very close to what we know today as being granita, which uh, is more of a, oh, hey, I don't have an ice cream machine, so I'm going to put juice in the freezer and scrape it with a fork every 20 minutes or so which is how you make it and it's it's absolutely respectable um, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about frozen ice we're talking about ice cream so one step up from granita you have sorbet and we talked a little bit about sorbet before um, the main difference between sorbet and granita is that this just has smaller ice chunks so instead of every 20 minutes you're scraping it in the freezer, maybe it's every five minutes. The internet kind of spins this like some amazing, incredible thing that the Italians discovered, is they were like, if they scraped it more often, the ice crystals would be smaller and it would be a better dish. So apparently it was important. Um, One other thing you can do is you can add more sugar, you can add more alcohol, more alcohol, any alcohol at all, um, and that ends up depressing... The freezing temperature so that you end up with something that's frozen but a little bit slushier move on to sherbert finally we start to add a little bit of milk to it Uh, generally you have like 1 to 2 percent milk fat 2 to 5 percent milk solids not real important except it makes it taste way better uh, than sorbet because you have the extra fat that's kind of transferring flavor to your tongue uh, you have a better mouth feel because there's more going on and it the fats interfere with the freezing as well so it's just the texture's a lot better it's a lot less grainy it's a lot smoother <coughs> but who cares we want to know about ice cream so we're going to talk about ice cream my favorite style of ice cream which i talked about before is philadelphia style and it's the american style of ice cream uh... and it only has three ingredients and that is cream and milk and sugar you don't have to do anything fancy I like it because as you saw before I like to play with flavors so the best thing you can do in the world is just throw this into the ice cream machine and then spend all of your time focusing on the flavorings that you want to do over in France though they get a little bit fancier so if you ever hear of custard based ice creams those are all French style um, and you end up using the egg yolk, and you cook it, and you mix it in, and it's, it's custardy. The thing is, A, it's pretty awesome, let's be honest. Um, the egg yolks add a lot of fat. They add a lot of smoothness of texture to the ice cream, um, and they add a little bit of a deeper flavor to it. So you end up with a more complex ice cream, but hey, it also kind of tastes like a custard. So you have to pick your flavors carefully. If you wanted to make something that was vanilla flavored, maybe French style would be okay because vanilla goes with custard. But grapes, like grape and eggs, I don't know. That's not an omelet that I want to eat. So, <laughs> so out of all these ingredients, um, you really are just stuck with fats and milk and uh, sugar. Why? So fats uh generally it's milk fat butter fat whatever you want to call it um it makes it taste rich and as you whip it in the same way that you whip cream in order to give it more fluff and more body uh, ice cream reacts the same way so as you're churning it in the ice cream machine because there are fats the fats destabilize which sounds like it would mean the fats would break down and like turn into goo but apparently the stabilized fats actually form like structures and they get bigger and bigger and bigger, so they actually make something. Which sounds a little more stable to me. I don't know. If you put too much fat in it, and it it's tasting kind of greasy, I'm guilty of making greasy ice creams all the time. Eh, what can I say? Um, and if you put way too much in and it churns for too long, I actually end up with butter, which is the grossest kind of ice cream, but apparently. <coughs> The French developed iced butter. I didn't do research on that though, so I don't know what to tell you. But there is an ice cream that is an ice cream that is actually butter. All right, good. You'll just have to come up at the end. All right. So if you put too little fat in it, though, it ends up getting too icy. Because what, you know, when you freeze something that has water in it, that water just wants to form crystals. And crystals are bad because they feel bad on your tongue and if you have like freezer burn or anything like that, that is all the result of ice crystals. <coughs> so if you have more fat that gets in the way of all of these ice crystal formations, um, you're able to prevent it from being too icy. So if you regularly make ice cream and it ends up being too icy, eh, maybe you got to add a little bit more fat. Also, think about putting milk into the freezer. It would just freeze, and it would be a solid block, and no one would want to eat that. If you put cream in the freezer, it would freeze into a solid block, too, but it would be a little less solid, so you'd be a little more likely to eat it. But either way, you need a little bit more than fat um, to get the job done. So uh, when you have ice cream, there's actually, by law, in order to call something ice cream, you need 10% milk fat in it. And different kinds of ice cream range about how much milk fat they have in it. So like a premium ice cream might have maybe 15% milk fat. A really, really nice one has maybe like 20% milk fat. Coconut milk, which we talked about before, has a really good like between 15 and 19% fat content. So hey, you don't have to mix things together. You can just put it in and then it turns into ice cream and everyone's happy. So... I mean, I guess we blew this already, but you don't have to use milk fat to make ice cream. You can use any kind of fat. Yeah, I have a picture of bacon there, but let's talk about olive oil ice cream. Has anyone made olive oil ice cream? Yeah, it's just ice cream that you put olive oil in instead of a whole bunch of cream. Um, Not much to it. It's just a good substitution. So you think, well, you had a picture of bacon up there. What about bacon? It's not 2010 anymore, but you can absolutely make bacon fat ice cream. Um, this person took a butter-based ice cream recipe and they substituted in bacon fat for all of the butter. It's apparently delicious, but not delicious enough because they also made mini corn dogs, and then they put that in ice cream. I don't know how you put mini corn dogs in ice cream. It's a mix-in, I suppose, so it seems to have worked. Milk solids are what come from milk. So whenever you're making ice cream and you have the cream part, that's the fat, and the milk part, it's only milk solids. We don't care about any of the fat that comes out of the milk. So if you're using uh, full fat milk, which is like 4% fat, 2% milk, 1% milk, skim milk, I don't care. Um, You can totally use skim milk whenever you're making ice cream because all you need are the solids out of it. And so what all these milk solids, they're pretty much everything that isn't fat that's in milk. So they're like, they're proteins and minerals, ash content. I don't know what it is, but it's listed as as one of the things that milk solids are. Um, It adds texture and chewiness to your ice cream. So it gives a little bit more body um, than the fat would otherwise. And so you can use skim milk. If you've ever heard of ice milk, you might think, oh, hey, this has to do with milk solids. It doesn't have to do with milk solids. Um, When I said that you need a 10% milk fat uh, content in ice cream, if you have less than that, it ends up being ice milk. So when, like, you're in college and you're eating ice milk, it's just a cheaper version of ice cream because they were like, oh, cream, that's so expensive. Let's just use milk instead. They won't know the difference. And it's true. You didn't know the difference, and you ate it. And this is really cool. Like, it's an advertisement for some sort of ice milk from a long time ago where – that woman's playing tennis but she also is really thinking about ice milk real hard. <laughs> <laughs> and you can too, I'm not sure. <coughs> so the third part of this is sugars. Now we talked about how sugars depress the freezing point um, and it's true because let's say you have one of those little ice pops, like a, an otter pop is the name that I learned they are called in like Ohio at some point but they have other like popsicley names. If you tried to freeze flavored water, it would just be a stick. But if you froze flavored water that has sugar in it, it's actually something you kind of chew and kind of have a little bit more fun with. It tastes a little bit better, and that is why you need sugar in order to make it less hard and less solid whenever it freezes. Now, you think, How much does this matter? How specific do we have to be? And I'm going to show you this chart, and you're just going to have to think about that. (laughs) This is a chart about uh, water and sugar and freezing points. And I don't understand it, but I thought it was a really cool chart, so I was going to show it to you. Now, if you eat like a ton of ice cream, or even a little bit of ice cream, and you pay attention to the labels, you might be thinking, what about corn syrup? because it, it, it makes everyone fat, that's the joke there. Um, so, the thing is about high fructose corn syrup is that it's incredible. Like, I always come up here and I'm like, oh, artificial flavors are great, blah, 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 but no, sugar kind of sucks in terms of making ice cream. High fructose corn syrup uh, depresses the freezing point better. It adds like a chewiness to the ice cream that you don't get out of sugar. That's pretty much it. But those two things make your ice cream way better than if you just made it out of plain sugar Now, the unfortunate thing about this is the corn syrup that you find in the grocery store not high fructose corn syrup so it doesn't do the same thing so you can't try to use that instead well you can it just won't be as good and if you try to find high fructose corn syrup you have to be like a big fancy company in order to buy it unless you guys have it at the Brooklyn kitchen Probably not. No. Disappointing. Um, so I've never been able to actually get my hands on it, uh, but it does a much better job at doing all the things that sugar's supposed to do in ice cream. But along with high fructose corn syrup, what are all the other things that make creepy generic ice cream? Creepy and generic. <laughs> that label is creepy and generic. So... First, we have to talk about how ice cream is made. So you have a drum, and that drum is cold, and you have a mixture that is going to become ice cream in it. And if you have like a, something that's freezing on the outside, um, the base will freeze to the outside of the drum. But you have this cool thing called a dasher. And the dasher goes along and scrapes all of the frozen parts off of the side and mixes them back into the, the mixture. Um, and then more freezes and it scrapes more off and more freezes and scrapes more off and eventually you have ice cream. Uh, if you freeze everything very, very quickly, you get real small ice crystals. If you freeze everything very, very slowly, you get big ice crystals. So if you're ever eating ice cream that is has big ice crystals, it seems kind of like flaky in a bad way, that's your own fault because everyone's dashers at like Ice Cream Company Corporation, um, they're really good and they make real small ice crystals. So. But the thing is, as it's churning it, it's also beating air into it. And that's something called overrun. <laughs> and overrun is the measure of air that gets beaten into the ice cream as it's being mixed. And this is the most insane part about cheap ice cream versus uncheap ice cream. So if you go and you get something like, Briars used to be really good, it's not really good now. Um, if you go buy generic ice cream, Um, you will find something that is 50% air. So in that block, if you notice uh, whenever you're buying ice cream, it's sold by volume and not by weight. So I can sell you something that's 50% air, and you won't know because it's still a pint. So what they do is they whip tons and tons of air into it. So if I needed to make 100 pints of ice cream, I could just have 50 pints of cream and milk, and I could beat so much air into it that it actually becomes hundred pints of ice cream whereas something like Haagen-Dazs which is like hey we're fancy um, they only beat maybe an extra thirty percent of air into their ice cream so if they wanted to make hundred pints of ice cream instead of 50 pints of base they would actually need 80 pints of base so when you're paying for more ice cream or you're paying for better ice cream you're actually paying for more ice cream because cheap ice cream is just a bunch of air um which seems like a really big scam. I don't know. Um, legally you can only have it be 50% air, but I mean that's what cheap ice cream is. It's 50% air. You're paying for flavored air. Buy fancy ice cream or make it yourself. You'll be okay. So, maybe you're also a fancy company and you're like, "Look, we're beating all this air into it, but I'm still sick of how much money we have to spend on cream and milk solids." you can use things like guar gum or xanthan gum or any of those gums and what they do is they end up making the ice cream thicker than it would otherwise be and giving it like a chewiness or a a mouth feel that you couldn't get with just you know trying to pass off a bunch of milk as being a quality ice cream so whenever you see any sort of gums in your ice cream you know they're taking a shortcut in terms of the ingredients and they don't want to actually go the extra mile Or Not even a whole mile, like it's it's a very small distance that they have to go to provide you with quality ingredients. But these guys are not. (coughs) Which brings us to gelato. Now gelato is really cool um, because if you eat it, you always get really small portions and it always seems very dense and very unlike ice cream. The reason is, it is very dense. Um, Whereas a cheap ice cream in America is gonna be like 50% overrun, gelato has 5% overrun. So whenever you're eating a bunch of gelato, you're actually just eating gelato and you're not eating very much air. It also generally has less sugar and fat uh, than normal ice cream, which means that when it freezes, it freezes much more solid. So you have to keep it at a higher temperature to keep it at that like slightly melty state all of the time so that it tastes good. So you need, uh, like you need a different way to freeze it because you can't get as much air into it and you need a different way to keep it cold because it can't be kept as cold as ice cream or else it'll freeze solid. So that's how gelato is different. Kolfi is my favorite. Um, I know we made ice cream up here um, with a bag and that was cool and fun, but Kolfi is from the Indian subcontinent and the idea behind it is You had a bunch of milk and you simmered it for a very long time until it was about 50% as much milk as you started off originally. Um, This would probably take like 24 hours, 36 hours. (coughs) And this is where something like uh, condensed milk or, yeah, not really evaporated milk, but condensed milk comes from. People actually had to sit around and condense the milk by simmering it and stirring it the whole time so it didn't burn on the bottom luckily these days we can just buy sweet condensed milk but the idea is you would take this milk and you would just freeze it maybe you'd put some rose water pistachios in it and you'd be good to go if you don't have an ice cream machine take some cream and whip it until you have whipped cream then just mix it with and condensed milk put it in the freezer you've got kofi it'll look like this it'll be amazing One of the reasons why it's so amazing is because you have evaporated out all of the water crystals. Water crystals are the ones that cause problems by being like sharp and jagged and icy and no good. So if you get rid of half of the water, you're doing something that's pretty good. I teach a class about mochi. People always ask me about mochi ice cream. I'm gonna tell you a secret fact about mochi ice cream. It's nothing special, man. It's just ice cream that you've wrapped mochi around. Mochi is just glutinous rice flour. It's just, it's just like if we took flour and we wrapped it around ice cream and suddenly we had some magic name for it and charged a lot of money for it at like fancy grocery stores, that's all it is. Um, sure, it's green tea ice cream, but as we found out, green tea ice cream's been around for like 200 years, so it shouldn't cost so much. I don't know why it does. It's very sad. Um my comparison that I have on my notes is uh, it's mochi and it's ice cream in the same way that you have pork and beans that is pork and also beans <laughs> and you haven't like raised a pig inside of a bean to make it pork and beans. So mochi ice cream, mochi over here, ice cream over here, you've just kind of pushed them together. But mochi's kind of sticky. Mochi ice cream is kind of sticky, but only the mochi part. Which brings us to (coughs) Donderma. If you eat this ice cream, you grow a mustache like that. (laughs) So uh, Donderma comes from Turkey. That's not actually true. It comes from Turkey. um, And in Turkey, they eat only 2.8 liters of ice cream a year, whereas in America, we eat like 18 liters of ice cream a year. So not the most, though. In New Zealand, they eat 22 liters a year. So they're the champions. We're not the best at anything. It's very sad. (laughs) But they don't eat very much ice cream. But the ice cream that they have is pretty cool. Um, So what they have is they have this orchid. um, And it gives us, you can create this uh, flower out of it called salep. And this is the orchid. And I don't know if you can notice anything interesting about this orchid. But you might think those look kind of like fox testicles. I don't know if I would agree, but in Arabic, um, this orchid is called fox testicle orchid. I think orchid actually just means testicle. Um, And so this ice cream that is made out of this flower is fox testicle ice cream. So the reason why it's so great, or one of the reasons why it's fox testicle, It's been known throughout time and space for being an amazing thing for maleness because it looks like it has testicles. So, behold the satyrian root. Is it not formed like the male privy parts? Accordingly, magic discovered it and revealed that it can restore a man's virility and passion. Yay, Yay history, yeah. That's actually not true, but it can do this really cool thing where it makes stretchy ice cream. Right, that guy's really cool. My ice cream doesn't stretch like that, but you do what you can. So, um, the orchid that makes this flower is actually it's endangered, um, and the problem is is not that they make too much ice cream out of it, um, but there are all kinds of like random drinks that they put it into, and it's just they they use this powder regularly enough, and it's really hard to grow orchids, so it's endangered and. Uh, There's not very much of it, and unfortunately, you can't export it from Turkey. So if I wanted to make stretchy ice cream, I couldn't get fox testicles in order to help me do it. I know, it's very sad. But fortunately for us, Kent Kirshenbaum from uh, NYU Chemistry Department was on the case. So he founded this thing called the Experimental Cuisine Collective, um, and they do all kinds of crazy things at the intersection of chemistry and food. And so what he did was he had one of his grad students smuggle some salep out of Turkey, right? It's great. This is what smuggling should be about. <laughs> and he analyzed it. And he found this compound in it, um, which is glucomannan, or glucomannan believe and it's a polysaccharide Uh, it's a bunch of uh, sugars put together it's very very long and it's like a dietary fiber it can absorb 200 times its weight yeah it's weight in water that's pretty impressive right that's that's a good thing to do Um, it's like the it's the best diet dietary fiber known to man so He was like, okay, so we know what makes it stretchy. It's this crazy dietary fiber. this crazy polysaccharide. Now we have to find out another legal place that we can find this polysaccharide because we can't just smuggle this out of Turkey forever. It'll be very bad. Cognac. So cognac is a plant also known as devil's tongue or voodoo lily or snake palm or elephant yam pretty cool. Yeah, it looks pretty intense, right? I love biological drawings. Um, And it has the same compound. And the best part about it, it doesn't just share the compound. Um, Its Latin name is Amorphophallus cognac. And I don't think you need to be a Latin genius to realize that Amorphophallus means shapeless penis. So we've joined the fox testicle and the shapeless penis and we are so good to go now. Um, So it has the same compound in it and when you look it up online, people just love to pose with it. Yeah, okay, so it's tall, right? You were very impressed by this. It's huge and they agree because they're, they're taking pictures of themselves next to it. So if you ever find one of these, take a picture, you'll be in good company. And the best part, there were so many pictures, so many pictures, but my favorite part is you can never be too old (laughs) or too cool to be in a picture with this plant. The dude on the right had like four pictures on Flickr of him posing with various different cognac plants. So it's amazing. I don't know what to say. So the part that you really care about though, um, it's the part at the bottom. You can see it on cool guy's side. Uh, It's called the corm. And that, that's where all of your uh, polysaccharides live. Now, you don't just use this to make fake Turkish ice cream. In Japan, they make something called konyaku, and it is a creepy, weird food. <coughs> Imagine if you made jello, but it didn't have any sugar in it, and it was like really hard, not hard, but like way too firm, and just like, it's like you're eating a sea creature, that doesn't want to be eaten. Um, I was in Japan with my dad's girlfriend and we were staying at this woman's house and my dad's girlfriend, the nicest woman in the world. And then the lady whose house we were staying at was like, try this Konyaku. And she was like, that's the grossest thing. I'm never gonna eat that. It's horrible. And I ate it and it was the grossest thing and it was horrible. Um, But hey, there's a reason that you eat it because in Japanese, (laughs) They call it the broom of the intestines because it is a wonderful dietary fiber. So it will clean you right out. Uh, Who knows? But hey, we're in America here. We don't stand for things like that. We stand for things like this, miracle noodles. (laughs) Miracle noodles are a miraculous noodle um, made from cognac root, um, which they have zero calories. They're soy-free, gluten-free, (coughs) guilt-free. If you love pasta but hate carbohydrates, these are the weird noodles for you. My roommates really like them. So (coughs) the problem with everything that's made out of cognac is it is very gelatinous and is very unforgiving. So you'll do things like choke to death on them. In 2001, there were a bunch of old people and babies in uh, California, I think, who just kept dying. And so they had to issue a bunch of warnings. They had to kind of stop a lot of things that were being produced by it. But hey, that's okay, because if you read sciency books, such as the Reflections on the Science of Food and Cooking, you'll find chapter five, which is called Cognac Donderma, Designing a Sustainable and Stretchable Fox Testicle Ice Cream. by that science guy that we talked about earlier (coughs) so I took that recipe and I bought some glucomannan from the internet you try to just pretend that you're a cool person you just want cognac no they won't do it it's gonna be glucomannan so you feel like a scientist while you're doing it but people on diets love this stuff so eh. so you take that you mix it with milk you let it sit there for like half an hour because fibers need some time to absorb then you cook it for fifteen minutes over a very 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 hot stove um, I don't know if anyone here has ever made a roux but the idea behind it is you have flour and you have butter and you're stirring it all the time for a very long time because you don't want it to burn and it's the exact same thing whenever you're trying to heat up this milky, cognac mixture and now I don't know why you do this because I didn't explain it But, hey, I'm just following directions. So it's boiling, and the whole time, I'm just stirring it and stirring it. And this is why I don't recommend making fox testicle ice cream on dates, because your hands look like this afterwards. That's gross. That's not a sexy thing. So then you take it, and you have to beat it in a stand mixer for half an hour. And it looks kind of fun and gooey and weird. Then you have to freeze it in an ice cream machine. And after you freeze it in an ice cream machine, you have to knead it like it's bread. Now, this doesn't look very stretchy, does it? No, it looks kind of sticky. Eh. but then you knead it more and more. And maybe you knead it, you put it back in the freezer for a half hour, you take it out, you knead it some more, freezer, knead it, freezer, knead it, and suddenly you have something like this going on. It's actually way less stretchy than this picture seems to uh, imply, but you'll be okay. I made probably like eight batches of it and every time I kind of changed the recipe because I kept doing something wrong every time um, in, in my point of view. Uh, their originally, original recipe used a lot of mastic, which is a resinous gum from like a pine tree that makes things sticky. Um, I didn't have any, so I just added more and more and more and more of the cognac powder in. It worked out okay. You're gonna be able to eat it in the back. Lessons learned. Corn syrup is amazing. And I don't care if you hate corn syrup, but put it in ice cream, because it's beautiful and amazing. Number two, cheap ice cream is lies and theft and deceit and betrayal because it's nothing but air. And guess what? Air is free. I'm breathing it right now, and it's not costing me a dime. And number three, between fox testicles and shapeless penises, Turkish ice cream science is pretty weird and apparently has no room for women. So I don't know what to tell you about that. See ya.